Welcome back to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with our special guest, Chaz Butler, son of Dawes Butler. We resumed our conversation by discussing a dramatic incident in the life of another voice acting legend, Mel Blanc. There's that famous story about Mel Blanc having the horrible car accident and Joe Barbera. I really out of respect for Mel because your dad was doing Barney's voice, I believe, for free out of respect for Mel. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And because Mel couldn't speak for a long time and then they set up in his house. You know, Hannah and Barbera had this done and they didn't have to because your dad was doing it. But they know an actor needs to perform, and that's what invigorated him. And and that's what invigorated him to get back. Yeah. My dad was, uh, I was very nice of him to do that. The Flintstones originally, and this is another thing I remember you telling me when we talked, your dad didn't seem to have an ounce of bitterness or covetousness of what the other guys got, because... He did the original pilot film, and he was Fred, and eventually it was Alan Reed, and you said your dad was fine. They thought, well, they made the right choice. He was like that. He knew that this probably wasn't a character for him that wouldn't work for him, and he was always willing to give that up for somebody else, and uh, he did that a lot. And then when my dad was um, in the hospital towards the end the last two weeks of his life they were bringing a portable tape machine to the hospital so that my dad could continue to do some of his character voices yeah i think elroy he did some of the dialogue and then patrick zimmerman did some for the movie of jetsons and he had done all of the tv series in the 80s he'd been in that but he was still doing all those characters in the 80s Yep. I just love to be able to hear him do it. It's wonderful that those shows, no matter what they did with the characters, it was, it well, was now, him. Uh, he always said that he did this, and it didn't come to mind for me. There was a period where he went to the doctor and they gave him the wrong medication, and he couldn't read the words off the paper. So they actually set up the studio, and I believe, let's say the director. Gordon Hunt? Um, Gordon Hunt, right, the daughter of Hunt from the Alan Hunt's father, yeah. Exactly. And they'd set up the thing where they would speak the line and then my dad would repeat it in Mm -hmm. character. I took him to those sessions, or should I say, I took him to that one session, Mm -hmm. and he did, in a two-hour span of time, he did a whole season's worth of of voiceover stuff Wow! through that technique. And he'd be right on the money every single time. It was a genius technique to do it that way, you know? George O'Hanlon was legally blind towards the end. And and he was also in a wheelchair. Yeah, so they had to do the same thing with him. Right. You know, there's so much ageism in all kinds of industries that you got to give them props. I mean, yeah, I know it's Dawes Butler and it's George O'Hanlon, but nevertheless, they did eventually replace them with really good replacements. Well, they had to do that. Yeah. Anything that deviated from the norm there would have been hell to pay (laughs) but it's rare and it even was rare then you know you just don't get the phone call anymore and they tried as much as they could the 80s jetsons was you can't compare it to the original because it was a different era hanna-barbera was a different company and the Uh, actors 
actors have aged. They've yeah, the actors grown. have aged, but they could have gotten a new cast. And I would venture to say that there's a 90% chance if they did it nowadays and they were the, the ages they were then, they'd oh, give they them a new cast. Oh, they do it now, definitely. But yeah. back then, you know. I remember they tried to do that with my dad. I, I can't remember what the situation was. And he was alerted to it, and he called his agent, Miles Hour. Mm-hmm. And Miles Hour had a fit, as he always explained it. You know what? It's and, probably uh, it's probably the first few Hanna Barbera records. He wasn't doing the voices, but then they did bring him in for the that's second. That's correct. Yeah, but for, my dad's agent went there. He said, "Look, this man has been your guy for the last ten years, and you're doing this to him." I wonder if it was their decision or it was Charles Show's decision because of time. Yeah, that, you know, that I, yeah, we see, we don't really know. I, I don't know. We yeah. don't really know who. There's a lot of mysteries about how those records were made, and there's really no but, one to uh, ask. But I'll tell you, from the Wizard of Oz Snagglepuss album on, he was on a lot of them. From that point on, he, he was. And when they couldn't get Mel Blanc to play Barney or Alan Reed to play Fred, it would be Henry Corden and Dawes Butler as Fred and Barney. Right. He did a lot of those after, so um, there's no way of knowing what the situation was. But a lot of fans find it jarring. And it's interesting to hear Paul Fries do some of his voices, but those are not the voices that we all knew. And that's part of it, too, is Hanna-Barbera was learning as they went along. TV was still new. Television animation was just beginning. And nobody realized how attached the viewers were going to get to who was doing the voices. The window for me with that was my father's workshop. The students that came to the workshop, my dad actually said this to one of them, don't come here to try to be an actor anymore. Your writing is unbelievable. Focus on your writing. And that was uh, Earl Kress, who became one of the headlining writers for Hanna-Barbera. He was, and he was also responsible for soundtracks that came out in the 90s we could never have before on Rhino Records. Correct. I mean, he definitely, my dad had a knack for actually seeing the talent that the actual person couldn't see. And he was very unique in that side of it. He did seem to take great pleasure in just helping launch, because he launched an awful lot. You know what else he did indirectly is, I don't know if you know Jim Magon, but he was the producer at Disneyland Records, and then he went on to work for TV animation. No, I didn't know. I didn't. Well, when he was assigned to do this huge amount of read-alongs, little books and records for Disneyland, when he first started, he had to get a cast, and he was told go to Dawes Butler's voice acting class, and he hired Patty Paris, Tony Pope, Corey Burton, and then people who would visit, like Hal Smith and Bob Holt. Because of Dawes Butler, that whole stock company of Disneyland Vista Records, which spread over into Star Wars, and uh, because they made a lot of other licensees, that cast of people came out of the workshop. So Dawes Butler actually did that, too. That's really cool. And I never heard that from anybody. That makes sense. You'd have a lot of very talented people come in through that workshop. Another one, Billy Simpson, William Simpson. Mm-hmm. A little kid, his first major thing to be the little prince, and it's got Richard Burton uh, part of it. I remember that, that was an album. That was yeah. a, a record album, exactly. Yeah. Now, I don't know if they actually were at a 
session together. It is a phenomenal thing. If people want to see a little of that, there's a couple of things that we can mention. There is that 45-minute documentary, Dawes Butler Voice Magician. Right, that was fabulous. That was so good. And that's on YouTube, but it was made, I think, for a local PBS originally. That's correct. Brilliant. Applaud. Good job. It's beautifully done. Is there also a video on YouTube where he's giving like a tour? If I'm not mistaken, I think that was William Simpson, I think, came back. Oh, okay. And did a tour of the workshop and the studio as well. I'm not sure, 100%. And then to have Billy Simpson graduate to the Dr. Demento show, contributing as Whimsical Will. Yeah! A very talented kid, very talented adult. The last time I saw him, he was taller than I was and had a beard and a mustache. And I go, you were the little kid that I saw all the time over there, and now you're a grown man. And that spark came from me inviting Dr. Demento to the studio because I was doing reel-to-reel tapes of miscellaneous rock and roll songs in a kind of miscellaneous format. And he was interested enough to come to the house, and I played some of those tapes for him. And then he started walking around the studio and seeing these pictures on the wall of my dad the three short waves or a few of those pictures up. Mm-hmm. And then I think there might have been some pictures of he and Stan Freeberg. He's looking at these photographs. And at one point he goes, who is this guy on the wall here? And I said, oh, that's my father. Dawes Butler. Your father is Dawes Butler? <laughs> the whole thing changed from me to my dad, which was fab. I have no problem there. And so finally, at one point, I left the studio. I said, I'll be back in a minute. And I went into the house and I had my father meet Dr. Demento and the rest is history. Wow. Um, he did a lot of stuff for Dr. Demento. and uh, That's nice that he got to because he played an enormous amount, especially the Freeberg stuff and all. He played all the Definitely records. all that early person to Pearson point of order. He did a lot of his own comedy Correct. singles. Yeah. Correct. Game show spoofs and all on, in like two minutes on a 45. <laughs> You and I have talked a lot about music. I know you're a major Beatles fan. Beatles were the inspiration for me. Actually, Ringo is responsible for me becoming a drummer. And Desi Arnaz Jr., Hmm. when he was with Dino, Desi, and Billy. Mm -hmm. And they were an unbelievable group. Never really got the recognition that they deserved. Uh, it was that. It was the start of the Beatles, and I did my own, and because of my dad's studio, which helped, I was able to play records and drum to them with my dad's sound system. Mm-hmm. And I'm there one day, 74, and I'm playing some Led Zeppelin things, some traffic, too. And my dad is teaching somebody in his workshop room. Mm-hmm. He introduces me to his student, and it's a guy named Michael Baird who at that particular time was a drummer for Randy Bachman from the Guess Who. Wow. Uh, So I'm like, wow. And he goes, was that you that was just in that room playing? He goes, now you have reached the pinnacle. You can leave the studio now, and you can go out and start looking for real people to play with. That was my first inspiration to getting out and trying to find other people to play with. And I did that for a number of years. And then I met 
uh, a guy who ended up being in the group Wall of Voodoo, and they had a big hit of Mexican radio. There was an organization that was called the Musician's Contact Service, where you could go in, sign yourself up, and you get a year of being able to go to their binders and just look up people to try to see if you can get something going. And And I found him and another guy, and we put ourselves together. It was a trio, mm-hmm. and we did some recording. And one of them was a song called Shadow Play. And then the punk scene started. We ended up playing at The Mask in Hollywood, mm-hmm. where the Go-Go's and X and some of the other early punk bands would meet and play. The group we were in, we were called the Model Citizens. And then that broke up. Did you continue drumming or get into Oh, yeah, I stayed drumming. I found some other bands to be in. I was in a group called Zeitgeist, and then that matured to a group called the Richie Glover Combo, and then that uh, developed into uh, Antiband. That was the last band that I was in, Antiband. We did come out with one record. It was called Antiband's Only Album, And I was at a swap meet down by Knott's Berry Farm. And I'm talking about it with my friend that I'm there with. And all of a sudden, this guy comes out from behind his table of wares. And he goes, you were in anti-band? I said, yeah, I was the drummer for that band. What's your name? Well, on the record, I'm Alan Butler. But it's really Charles Butler, and that's really great. Nice to meet you. He goes, I am looking for your single. Hmm, wow. I have your album, and I paid the ungodly amount of money for it. You paid 450 bucks for that album? Wow. Wow. You're a fan. See, you never know how you touch people's lives. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much is the story. Then I recently I was in a group from 2002... Yeah, I guess about 2018, 2019, we were a group, no name, and it was a cover band. We did all songs by other bands, which I always wanted to do, stemming from working in my dad's studio and listening to all those records. Now I was actually playing them with these two other guys, Mm -hmm. and we would do all sorts of covers from the association Along Comes Mary, to Judas Priest. That would be the range. That's quite a range. (laughs) Very eclectic is what I like. See, but that's fun. We would do these songs that I could do lead vocals on, and my technique was always to try to sound as closely as I could to the original artist. So I did quite a few Rolling Stones songs. So I would listen to Mick Jagger's vocal delivery, and then I, sitting at the drums, I would try to sing like him. It got to a point where the guys, we'd stop, and they'd look at me, and they'd go, Chaz, you've got Jagger down to a science. You really do a great job with these things. One of the things that Dawes Butler says in that Voice Magician documentary is, and I put this in my book, the quote, it's all about the music. And there's a musicality to great voice work, great dialogue. You could plot it on a piece of sheet music 
And you've kind of done both because he was doing Charles Butterworth and you're doing Mick Jagger. In a way... <laughs> yes! It is similar, yes. It's really not a surprise that you have that gift. And you know, the fact is, life well lived doing what you love to do. It was a career that didn't get any stardom out of it, but I definitely got enjoyment out of it. That, fact, you know, there's a lot of people yeah. who got stardom and didn't get joy, too. So uh, right, Exactly. You have um, a family that grew up in a loving environment, supportive parents... You... One thing I wanted to mention before mm -hmm. we let we leave, my dad, before he got into the mainstream cartoon stuff, before he got into the Hanna-Barbera uh, cartoon stuff, he was part of a production company that was housed at the corner of Melrose and La Cienic. The Melting Pot was the name of the restaurant. Uh -huh. Dad building back in the mid to late 50s housed this company called Quartet Films. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and my dad was part of that. Director, writer, and performer mm -hmm. in these little cartoon commercial snippets that he would produce. And I would imagine that he must have taken a couple of those to Tex Avery to show him those classic oh, yeah. early animation, the music that was used for them. Herschel Bernardi was one of them. They did titles to shows and stuff and for titles. films. My and... dad did a lot of those. He said to me once, he said, that Twilight Zone thing with the letters breaking up, I did that. No like kidding. Three or four years ago, before Twilight Zone was even in existence. So Rod Serling must have seen that and was inspired to utilize it for his thing. So everybody is influenced by somebody else. And that's really is true. You obviously really revere your dad, and, and I still constantly think about my dad. And he used to have these sayings and things that he taught me that sometimes we kind of chuckle over them because they're kind of Ward Cleaver-ish. But what do you think are some of the things that you carry with you personally that your dad taught you? I'm looking at a picture right now. It has a kind of a larger picture in the center and two littlish pictures off to the right and the left and the expressions that my father has in these pictures i can see me i can see paul i can see don i can see david in these expressions it was just his natural self that's how he presented himself things that he taught me don't be discouraged Whatever you find, just stick with it. And I did that with music. Now, this is fascinating stuff. I could talk to you for hours about this. Yeah, we could talk all day. And I, I, this has really been great. It's been really fun. Yeah, I appreciate and, you doing uh, this. I really I'd do. like to actually dedicate this to my brothers, to Paul and to Don and to David, to my mother, who's no longer here, who had an unbelievable life herself, even though it wasn't entertainment, she did a whole lot of stuff that we didn't find out until she passed. Mm. So we didn't even know these things when she was with us. It came out after, 
and unbelievable what she did in a nutshell basically she had left albemarle at 17 18 went to new york by herself and was starting her life and then her mother had a nervous breakdown and it was because her father had committed suicide Mm. at a young age because of the tuberculosis problem that they had yeah, back yeah. in those early years. And he just could not take it anymore. So that in itself had to be a big blow. Now her mother's having a nervous breakdown. She ended up moving back to Albemarle, left New York, and came back to help raise her four other siblings at the age of 17, 18 years old. And I hear this, and I'm flabbergasted. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I really appreciate you sharing so much no, of this stuff. Yeah, I'm I glad mean, we did this. I just want to thank you so much, Chaz Butler, for being on the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara. Well, thanks again, Greg. It was really uh, it was an honor. I want to thank everybody for listening. And I hope that you'll tune in again. Click like, click subscribe. Write a nice review if you want to, and talk to your friends. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with Greg Airbaugh. Please join us again, and many thanks for listening. <laughs>